Hello, friends. You have made it to episode 19 of the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew, and before we dive into our recent interview with Jared McKenna, our Aussie brother across the world, wanted to mention this fundraiser we're doing. For anyone who doesn't know, we are currently looking to raise $500 for the podcast to upgrade our gear, give you a better quality listening experience, pay for the subscription uh, to host the podcast, and do a number of other fun things. And uh, if you are interested in giving, no pressure, uh, but feel free to log on to our GoFundMe page. I know it's a bit of a step, uh, but if you're willing to take the 30 seconds to do it, we'll have a link to it below. And uh, really looking forward to hearing from you guys through donations and even more broadly for those of you who have been emailing us in uh, questions and thoughts and feedback. Really appreciate it. Without further ado... Looking forward to this episode with Jared. Enjoy. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 19 of the Lady Podcast. This is uh, Andy <laughs> here with Steve-O, and uh, we've, we've, we've just been renamed. Uh, man, we're so excited to have, uh, I don't have a short name for him, but Jared McKenna joining us, actually joining us from the future, 9.18 a.m., right. 12 hours ahead of us from Perth, Australia. Jared, what's going on, man? Hey, fellas. This, this is fun. So glad to have you on. Thank you so much for uh, coming on board with us and uh, really excited to, to have you on as a guest as we kind of move into, uh, I guess, and this this will be part three in a, in a new sort of mini series we're doing on the kingdom. And uh, man, looking forward to, to diving into all sorts of fun things uh, today. But uh, Stephen, I'll let you drive a little bit, man. Maybe we could uh, we could dive right into what we're talking about today. Yeah. So, uh, Jared, I'll give you a little bit of context. We've had, uh, Kurt Willems, um, uh, on, on the show just to give us an introduction into the kingdom sort of from his, uh, from, from the background, I guess, of, uh, the, the, the political context and what was happening in, in, in you know, that, that space as Jesus is walking around and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So, and then we had Richard Beck on and he, uh, we talked a lot about hospitality as a, uh, a vehicle for the kingdom as a, as a signpost of the kingdom, uh, and, and the, the different, the different, I guess, boundaries that, that are just still really difficult to, uh, to break down, uh, within the church. And, and I think also just within ourselves, uh, as we try to welcome the kingdom and become the signposts of the kingdom coming, uh, Jared, you were just kind of a natural, like we, we gotta, we gotta try to get this we guy on. I wanted to find some folks who are living out what what the kingdom means, and so I guess we could start with that, Jared. When you when you when we talk about the kingdom of God, what um, I don't know what what just what do you like to talk about? I mean, if someone if someone comes to you and they're like, "Hey, listen, I want to you know learn about the kingdom of God," where do you start and what do you what do you tell them? Steve, Andy, let me give you what is a little bit of a, a liturgy when it comes to discussions about the king. I like to remind people that talk of the kingdom of God is talk of eternal life. And I have a mate on the south side of Chicago, Jonathan Brooks, and in his new book, Church Forsaken, he reminds us that eternal life isn't about the afterlife, right? Mm. 
So if eternal life isn't about the afterlife, the question is, well, what what is eternal life? And if we take it from Scripture and, like, we land somewhere, like, I don't know, um, Luke 10 and the lawyer asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's an important question. So if we take seriously that kingdom life is eternal life, but it's not about the afterlife, then we can start looking through history, how different people have named it in ways that start to relativize our common cartoonish understandings of what kingdom life might be about. So um, if we go to Calvin, uh, and it's a definition that some Calvinists won't not like, but eternal life, according to one little section of Calvin, he talks about that eternal life is actually about the restoration of all things and pure joy, which is a fascinating mm. definition. But maybe people aren't that fond on Calvin, so we could pull um, different theologians in, like we could do N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright would remind us that eternal life is not about life after death, but life after life after death. That's another way of saying that it's about resurrection life, which is another way of saying, using Paul's language from Romans 8, that our hope is not escape from the body, but the resurrection of the body. So eternal life, kingdom life, is about resurrection life, which is not life after death, but life after life after death. But maybe people aren't much of an N.T. Wright fan, so we could use... Uh, De Chardin, which has become incredibly popular, his theology after the recent royal wedding where he was quoted. And for De Chardin, he would remind us that eternal life is about omega life, omega being the last Greek letter of the alphabet, as in where all of life is going, that um, the point of end times is not uh, well, you could put it that God has an end in mind, that all of history is going somewhere. So if it's not about the afterlife and eternal life is kingdom life and it's about omega life, well, some, some of the importance then is that God has a purpose, God has a point, God has um, a direction for all of history. Or my friend James Allison, he would put it that eternal life is actually about being caught up in the life of God. Um, or uh, Nikolai Birdiev, the orthodox theologian, he would say that eternal life or kingdom life is the transfiguration of all of creation. Mm. So in all these answers, what we're starting to see is a radical affirmation of creation that God's good purposes are to um, take our souls elsewhere. For Justin Martyr, um, so named because he was martyred, would remind us as one of the early church fathers that those who think their souls are taken to heaven are godless, impious, heretics, i.e. the Christian hope isn't that our souls are taken elsewhere. The Christian hope is that the transfiguration of all that is, all of reality in Nikolai Birdiev's language, would be caught up into the life of God, that all of history in terms of the Chardin is heading towards that point, and it's the restoration of all things to use Calvin's language, which is clearly taken and stolen from Jesus. Uh, but I love it when people sample yeah. Jesus like that. <laughs> so for any of these conversations about what is kingdom life, we need to be thinking about it in those kind of terms. But I actually like um, uh, St. Simeon, uh, the new theologian, that 11th century orthodox theologian, where he puts it in Trinitarian terms and talks about the kingdom as um, it is Christ who is the king of the kingdom and that the Holy Spirit is the kinging, if you want, or the reigning of that king. And so there's something about kingdom life, which is actually life in the Holy Spirit, that um, it's a life that um, is caught up in the, the energies of God, uh, that uh, the Son is seen to the glory of the Father, 
And the importance of actually naming it across these different traditions is that it should bring us to the point of humility and prayer that we start to welcome their mystery that is good news for our neighbours, is good news for our enemies and is good news for the earth. And that has to be the starting point for any discussion of the kingdom of God. And that's, uh, wow. and that's the episode. Thank you all for tuning in. <laughs> yeah, <we're done. laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs> wow, man. That's, you want to follow that up? Was was that was that the version of the kingdom or your the understanding of the kingdom that you received uh, when you were first converted, or is that something that kind of came from your process? <laughs> yeah, I think like a a lot of people, Steve, that um, uh, you inherit different <laughs> wow, things from different corners, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm I'm going to keep going the Aussie keep going, uh, equivalents the, the whole episode. Yeah. Um, uh, my mate John O. Martin uh, is now being called John O. Uh, by Americans as well, which brings me great joy. That's so, awesome. Jonathan Martin, John O. Martin, who you should have on this episode, um, uh, on this uh, podcast, he, he would make a for a great We'd episode. He's a he's a dear man. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. he's brilliant. Um, I I came to faith in the outworkings of my parents' deconstruction of their fundamentalism, which was um, brutal. And my parents um, love each other dearly and um, are now in their early 70s and have this beautiful marriage, but nothing threatened it more than the fundamentalism that um, they came into, both out of completely different traditions. So my dad uh, was a, a monk in a uh, Catholic order before he migrated to Australia. Um, my mum uh, grew up um, in, in a secular home and uh, her ancestry is Russian Jewish. And both of them came to a form of Christianity, which um, did them such damage. And instead of being life-giving was kind of death dealing. And uh, in uh, a deconstruction support group for fundamentalist anonymous, that's that's uh, how I now describe it. I came to faith at the age of 13, nearly 14, first year of high school. And um, Kingdom of God at that time probably would have been described as um, uh, where we go when we die, if we get it right. Mm. Or at least that's what they were deconstructing. So uh, Literally, um, my parents and a few of their mates with their Bibles open in their laps on a Sunday in a living room in a house church setting kind of going, it can't mean that. That was so damaging. So what does it mean? And uh, th that's the kind of stuff that I came to faith as it was being deconstructed. Wow. So they were ahead of their time, man. Maybe not, but right? That like makes me think, because we talked about this earlier, it's like, well, a lot of this what what what's been now called the emerging church movement or or voices or the house <laughs> church thing. But what this makes me think is that those conversations have probably been going on since day one. Like the, this sort of yeah. process of I, I'm not looking to throw everything away, but it, it, it there must be more. There must be. It, it, I feel like it looks different than this than this thing I've inherited. Um, that's maybe been unhealthy. What what was it yeah, that cast and, doubt on that? I'm curious. We go ahead. Were you? Sorry, my my connection is a little slow. No, that's fine. I was just going to say that um, 
uh, as the rabbis talk about, that each generation uh, must make the Exodus journey as if it was themselves leaving Egypt. The same is true with this stuff as well, that if people are listening in and going, oh, this is brand new, I think there is a particular moment we're living through in the same way that on the other side of the printing press, um, the, the Reformation was a response to technology. I think um, what we're living through at the moment is a response to uh, yes, the reality of uh, the internet and how that has changed every society, but also our unprecedented ecological crisis. And there are questions that each generation must live through in, in new ways as they discover what it is to to welcome this reality that we were naming as the reign of God, the kingdom of God. And um, it's not an escape from these issues, but actually how do these issues become uh, focused and clear? And uh, in fact, how do we engage them in ways that calls out of us what this Kairos moment is asking for us? Um, but yeah, dad likes to joke that um, uh, this was the emerging church before the emerging church was selling books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Stephen, I think your question was you. You were mentioned. You were. I think you were saying something to the effect of like what caused them to feel that sense of like dissatisfaction, or where did that? Where did the question come from? Was that the question? Yeah, I'm. I'm interested in hearing. You know, but before a, a belief like that, or like a, a significant kind of pillar in a theological framework has to shift, like you have to reach a certain threshold of discomfort, just theologically. Like the tension has to get to be so significant that the foundations start to crumble before you really yeah. are willing to take on an entirely different perspective. So my, my question is, what led to that tension? What were the, were, were there sort of a specific kind of nagging things that were just like, God, just, there's no way that can't be, there's gotta be more to the kingdom than just that. What were those things for you guys, I guess for your family and for you? Yeah. And Steve, like I was 10, 11 years old. So maybe you should have uh, my mum and dad on, on the podcast and ask them. But what I, I do remember is the ridiculousness of um, them saying that this isn't about the basics, loving God and, and loving neighbour. And I remember um, them going, this is ridiculous. There are congregational meetings around what songs we are singing and just, just the... Um, uh, ridiculous rule keeping and uh, how it became so litigious instead of like a love affair and uh, they they wanted out so out initially for my dad went um, meant going back to where he first fell in love with a person of Jesus and so we started going to mass and now my mum who uh, came to faith through uh, seeing Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King on TV um, in her early teens and asking her mum, what's a Baptist? Because in country Victoria, Australia, the um, news report said Baptist minister and mum was so impacted by Martin Luther King um, that she asked her mum. And the nearest town where they got their groceries once a week because they lived in such a small town uh, had a Baptist church. And so my grandmother said to my mum, when we drive into town to get our groceries, I'll point out the Baptist church for you. And so fast forward a number of years, my mum gets her license at 16 years old and goes uh, to the local town 20 minutes up the road and uh, sees that the service times were Sunday morning at whenever, rocks up, hears an altar call and responds. Wow. So for both my parents, that um, very different 
um, uh, faith traditions and very different uh, ways of engaging. And for them, it was trying to work out, okay, the places where we've fallen in love with Jesus and um, the reality that he opens up that we're naming as the kingdom of God, how do we find a way of engaging that that is um, uh, culturally um, meets us where we are, even though we've been formed so differently, and feeds our kids in such ways that they would fall in love with the reality that is love as well. And, that you know, you're both parents, you, you know the difficulty of those kind of decisions, like not merely what's good for me, but what's good for my partner and what's good for um, uh, these blessed children that we've been given as a gift to steward and how do we help them fall in, in love. They're, they're tough questions and I really... I'm thankful for the way that my parents um, navigated all of that. So I wanted to set a, a bit of a foundation kind of for, for a question here. Um, and I want to talk about this idea of, of discipleship in light of, in lieu mm. of, of the kingdom. And, you know, for, for those of you who don't know, Jared, if you were to like quickly Google, you'll see any number of things, um, including, you know, teaching pastor and work with refugees and social justice. And, you know, the list goes on. Hopefully we're gonna be able to talk about some of these specific things. And of course it, it then begs the question for someone like you, Jared, like, where did this start? What did, when you think about the, obviously beyond just like the call to follow Jesus is like, okay, but this person's clearly not just looking to like maintain moral purity. So he gets into heaven when he dies. Like there's, there's more to it here. And to set again, a little bit of backdrop for this idea of discipleship, <clears throat> you know, for, for me growing up, I think in the sort of what I'll, what I'll deem the more sort of transactional, and I hate to be dualistic, but, but to, to what I would deem in my understanding and kind of coming to faith as a bit more of a transactional model. Um, I do the, you know, high, a lot of language around economics. I do this such that, uh, so that I can get forgiven and, and I'll, you know, and Jesus will then in turn give me the spirit and bless my life, et cetera. Um, this idea of kind of beyond the basics of repenting from moral sins, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, cussing and, uh, you know, be, being not, not being super kind, not being super generous. Like when you begin to move beyond just that, it's like, okay, well, I did that. I have my, my, my theological ducks in a row. Doctrinally, I know I believe the right things about the right things. So what else is there? Like, I, I basically need to hold on tight and make sure that I maintain this certain level, this baseline of, of purity or, or whatever else so that I get in. And then there's this whole other world of justice, peacemaking, giving to the needy, giving to the poor, which in my opinion, sorry to preach here, but kind of falls into, which in that framework falls into one of two buckets. Like, why do we even do that? Bucket number one is this, like, well, because I need to in order to make sure that God's pleased with me. Matthew 25, like I got to make sure that God like still lets me in end of the day. And that's part of kind of the checklist to get in. And then bucket number two of like, well, it's not salvation dependent. It's not part of my transaction, but it's a good deed and we should obey. And it's just a good thing to do on the side. Um, and that's overly <clears throat> simplistic. But when you put the kingdom framework on it, it no longer becomes this sort of means to an end. Like I'll get in if I do these great things, but rather in obedience. And again, this word discipleship in obedience to Jesus praying that and leading us in prayer that the kingdom of God would come on earth as in heaven, that sort of life and eternal life of you talk, as you've talked about and bringing that to like bringing the kingdom and living a life that is just full of peacemaking, et cetera, is actually participation and ushering in 
this way of God on earth. And that's an end in itself. It doesn't, it no longer becomes yeah. this means to a bigger, to a bigger thing. I say all that to say, Jared, I'm happy to just have you respond to that. But I'm curious when you think about discipleship in lieu of the kingdom or in light of the kingdom, um, where obeying Jesus and following him is actually a means of bringing in his reign and rule today versus, you know, adding the right notch to my belt to make sure I, I get into heaven when I die. Yeah. And, um, I think we often think about hospitality as um, something uh, we uh, we do or, or, or God does for us. But what does it mean to be hospitable to this future? What does it mean to be hospitable and welcome in where all of history is going? What does it mean to take seriously that heaven is looking for a home and to, to welcome God's very presence, heaven, uh, into our life, and and suddenly, whether it's um, uh, Nikolai Birdiev and his discussion of the transfiguration of all things, like uh, what does it look like for everything to be transfigured, and to know that um, my own heart and my own life is going to become a site where I welcome that very presence. Um, because as James Cone reminds us, where we do theology from determines the theology that we will arrive at. If if you're in the 16th century and uh, it's, um, you know, ecclesiological disputes around the presence of God at the Lord's table, um, you arrive at certain answers. But if you have been uh, stolen um, uh, from the continent of Africa on a slave ship, you ask different questions at the bottom of a slave mm. ship, not about where or how God is present at the table, but how is God present um, in this reality where people around me are dying? Or if, um, to stay with James Cone, the reality of asking questions of what does it mean um, as a slave being forced to pick cotton and uh, to, to ask how is God present in this reality? And so often we want theologies that meet our needs and our desires instead of having theologies that have our desires transformed. You mentioned prayer, Andy, and, and central to how our Lord teaches us to pray. And it's important to say that um, the disciples come to Jesus and say, um, you know, uh, John the Baptist followers have a prayer, teach us to pray. And Jesus isn't like, oh, just, you know, let it come out of your heart. Just make it up as you go along. He says, uh, sure, here it is. And part of it is um, your kingdom come, your will be done, that um, God's desires coming to pass in our life is actually central to what it is to learn to pray. Um, if if we can't learn to desire what God desires or to use Jesus' language from, you know, the sixth chapter of Matthew's gospel, um, to seek first God's reign, God's kingdom and God's healing justice or, or righteousness, as it's often unhelpfully translated in English because it uh, turns the term into something that means something other than uh, equity, uh, which is how it reads in the Greek, the kind of um, just relations that um, righteousness is actually about instead of uh, a form of purity, which is about um, uh, uh, me at the exclusion of others instead of real righteousness is about how we relate to others. Um, that is a different kind of question. So for me, Andy, to go back to, to my story, um, you know, uh, all, all I had was my parents deconstructing 
uh, and the Gospels and um, this deep experience as a child that um, God gets at me in the goodness of creation. And so whether it's walking to school through, you know, the, the Balga bushes, which are unique to my part of the world, and uh, hearing kookaburras and uh, the Australian magpies and these birds and their songs, which taught me to pray um, the, the experience of the um, the stillness of the stars and knowing that in the same way that Francis, who people usually know St. Francis's conversion from the 12th century is embracing the leper, but it wasn't merely embracing the leper. It was actually him struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder after coming back from a war where he was in, imprisoned for over a year uh, as his dad came up with the money to buy him out and then going back to the same um, uh, pubs and getting drunk again and yet it not having the same uh, allure as it used to and stumbling out drunk from a pub and looking up at the stars and St. Francis is said to have said, if these are the creatures, how great must the creator be? Andy, I think we need to come back to questions of awe and wonder and the goodness of creation and start doing our theology from the context we find ourselves in. So um, reading my Bible, reading the Gospels in the morning as a 14-year-old, walking to school through the praises of bottle brush trees and bauga trees and magpies and kookaburras and arriving in my mates, you know, um, at an elite boys' school and yet um, still uh, selling drugs and uh, all the rest, of the, those kind of realities, and going, what is it to live the love that I have experienced in prayer to these friends who don't know that love yet? That's a different place to start theology. But if if we bring people back to their bodies, that it's their bodies that will be redeemed, that's the Christian hope, bring people back to the goodness of creation um, and start um, understanding the tradition from those experiences. Andy, I think we need to teach people to pray. Above all things, we, we need to teach people to, to fall in love again with the love that first loved them. And if we don't do that work, I don't know if there's any sustainable way to do um, justice work. And without justice work, I think um, any talk of Christianity is a clanging gong and a tinkling cymbal. Mm. That's good, man. Go ahead, yeah. So, Jared, um, what I'm what I'm hearing is kind of a it's a an aesthetic appeal or an aesthetic kind of case for for the faith, like that that what what you find compelling about the kingdom isn't the logic or how it all makes sense in some sort of a, a, a structure, but it's, but it's the, it's the, the degree to which something has kind of captured you and it, and it kind of draws you in to, to do something. Um, Steve, I don't know many people other than with sociological pressures who want anything to do with Christian faith. If they haven't first fallen in love mm. with the God who loves them. And uh, I mean, uh, it might sound naff, um, but Jesus loves me, this I know. That's the whole journey. You don't need the rest of the song. Like it's it's Jesus loves me. And what is it to really enter into that knowing, into that intimacy in the same way that uh, Habakkuk talks about that 
Um, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the seas. The word there in Hebrew, it's it's a word for intimacy, uh, as in a, a married couple share intimacy, as in love making, and that's the kind of knowledge we're talking about. Otherwise, we're at danger of a Gnosticism, which we think if our theology is right, if our doctrine is right, if our doctrine of grace is right, we can receive grace. Hmm. It's rubbish. Like it's it's complete rubbish and it's toxic because what it will set up is that what I need to be doing to enter into this reality instead of how do I need to be opening to this reality, which is first coming to me. The kingdom isn't something that we work towards. It's something that's rushing towards us. Like like a father running towards a son who spent all his money on sex workers. That's how the kingdom comes to us. Uh, l- like a, a, a woman who has lost coins and is searching for it. That's how the kingdom comes to us. Like a, a shepherd who goes after the one sheep. That's how this reality comes for us. And realizing that that kind of intimate knowledge... It is open to everyone. It's an open secret. Go and spend time. Aquinas would say um, that we have the scriptures and we have nature. Go spend time and soak yourself in both of them. Realize the goodness of both of them. Allow them to point to Jesus. And as they point to Jesus, it is the Spirit's work that points us to Jesus and we get caught up in that reality. I'm very wary of people who talk about um, social justice in ways that are more woke than thou. Um, Expound on that. Justice has to be... Yeah, what do you mean by that? I think it has to be the work of repentance. Um, Both your nation and my nation are on stolen land. That's an uncomfortable conversation. Um, we we deeply want to um, prove ourselves right and then have Christianities which are, are forms of rightness. And as my friend James Allison, who I was quoting earlier, would say, it's the joy of being wrong. That's Christianity. Welcome to the joy of being wrong and being able to relax into a love where we can embrace how wrong we've been. Like when we sing, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The correct response to that is yes, I was participating in crucifying him. And it's like, whoa, 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 what do you mean? I'm basically a a good person. I'm I'm middle class. I've learned polite ways to cover up my mess. Uh, My addictions are socially acceptable and I can hold down a job uh, while I take part in an economy that comes at the cost of the poor and is literally costing us the earth. Like, I'm, I'm not wrong. And the reality that we can barely face is that there is such toxicity in the way that we talk about uh, religion and spirituality that it's another consumer good that helps us avoid what moment we're actually living through in history and what is actually needed. I am convinced that what we need is the love revealed to us in Christ Jesus. That's that's uh, And I don't think um, there is any power in reality that can actually keep us from that love revealed to us in Christ Jesus. And yet, since Simeon, the new theologian, he would insist that the kind of prayer where we take our imagination, our mind, into our heart, and we kind of live with the kind of what it is to be pure in heart and realise that that isn't about um, editing out and covering up, but actually confessing and living with a certain kind of transparency, that we become people of prayer where we can taste and see for ourselves that the Lord is good. 
And, I mean, all attempts at more woke than thou, and whether it's the religious right and their games of purity, or whether it's the secular left and uh, their games of purity, (laughs) that both both these things um, get in the way of what it is to go, I'm part of the problem, and yet I'm so deeply loved that I can start to witness to a different future for all of reality. And that's what we need. So I think people should renounce all theology that doesn't teach them to become people of humility and love. And I don't know any way other than encountering God than to experience that. Mm, that's great. That's great. Jared, Would love. I'd love to kind of, we've talked a lot about, well, a number of things. And then I feel like you set an awesome foundation, even kind of your not only your upbringing, but kind of coming to faith and a lot of these foundational things, which we love to cover. But I wanted to even fast forward a little bit to kind of today, you know, for those, for those who aren't Mm -hmm. familiar with you, with your work, with your city, with what you focus, you know, any number of things. um, Can you give us like a snapshot of just, just where your heart is today and your, and therefore your attention, your energy, your, your work. Um, you know, I know I mentioned refugees earlier. I would love to even hear more about, um, your current, you know, first home and what you're doing there. Um, would love to hear about the church you're a part of, like give us kind of a snapshot into, into Jared McKenna's life and, and how the kingdom is sort of, and Jesus is kind of leading you today. Yeah. Um, Andy, I think the danger with a lot of that stuff, is we we start to think that that is the main stuff. Um, l- l- let me break down what I mean. I-, I was recently with a mate from the US and said, you have this huge platform and you don't have any products. You said that to him or he said that to you? <laughs> no, he said that um, to me. You have this huge platform but you don't have any mm. products. I don't have books. I-, I don't have things that people can buy. I'm, I'm not pushing anything. Um, I desire for people to actually experience the love that we see in Christ Jesus. that That's that's it for me, right? Like, so I, I never meant to get into um, refugee rights stuff. I was just seeking to live the love that um, God has shown me in Jesus and to have spent the last 17 or 15 years intensively living with people who are, you know, otherwise homeless or drug addicted or uh, without a home because they need safety um, as asylum seekers or refugees. And as as you learn to pray in those contexts, you learn to ask different questions. Um, and there's so much stuff that wants us to buy the latest book, go to the next conference, um, uh, chase down a new theology um, and think that if I only understand something differently, then I will have arrived. Um, there, there's no magic. There, there's, there's no one... Um, there's no, this isn't about smoke machines and um, people pulling levers in the dark. Um, beyond the hype, there's the business of, uh, you know, going from what it is that we don't know what we're doing and Jesus prays for us on the cross because we don't know what we're doing, um, to we're not doing what we're doing and we're participating in the life of God. So our left hand doesn't know the good that our right hand is doing because what our unconscious is starting to do is not participate in systems of domination that Jesus has conquered on the cross, 
but instead participate in the resurrection, which is ours in the cross, which means that we can now take part in the compassion that we are created in the image of. And so in practical terms, um, um, I'm pastoring. I don't get paid to, to pastor. Um, I've had two years of my life when I've been in a paid pastoral role and I've been in pastoral ministry, well, some could argue um, since I was 14 years old. <laughs> um, the, my experience in high school with my mates is that my sister, myself and two other girls our age was the youth group. And by the time we were in our last year of high school, we had a youth group of over 150 kids with only eight of us having Christian parents and most of my mates being baptised where we would go surfing as kids um, uh, on the weekends and the rest. And it's not because we had um, great theology. Um, it's not because we had a great band. It, it's not because we had, it was because we were seeking to live the love that is revealed in Christ Jesus that saves. And uh, in a, in a very real way, Andy, I'm still just kind of doing that. Like people talk about the peace awards or the platforms or, and, more and more, particularly after going through an experience the last couple of years where um, my life took a turn that I couldn't foresee, I, I worry that people will start to desire the things which are byproducts of a life of prayer. Um, we start to think that um, spiritual success is being heard by heaps of people or being on certain platforms or being under... Um, the bright lights or meeting famous people, and we talk about that as influence and all the rest, I think we need to desire to, I don't know, learn how to pray. That's why I spend so much time teaching contemplative prayer, particularly in Pentecostal and charismatic circles where, um, uh, you know, that's where I spend a lot of my time um, ministering and the, the connection between the work I get paid to do to pay the bills to um, teach people nonviolent social transformation um, and contemplative prayer is that these aren't two different journeys, but they're actually the one journey. Um, and my worry is that people will go and do all this social justice stuff and then think they need to upgrade it to a little bit of personal Gnosticism on the side to make sure they've got balance or, um, you know, some form of um, internal um, you know, peace or something like that, instead of it being, it's all, it's all just welcoming that love where all of history is going. Um, and it's a love that though crucifiable always resurrects. So yeah, uh, first home project. Um, I live with 12 recently arrived refugees. Um, I, you know, I do work for Greenpeace and the Wilderness Society and Rising Tide in terms of training their activists. Um, I, do a lot of work in the Middle East, Eastern Europe, helping uh, the world's largest aid development relief organisations uh, think through what it is for recipients of their aid to become participants in their aid. And um, I get invited to speak uh, a bunch of places. But I hope your listeners um, don't go away talking about Jared and some crazy stories um, because evangelicals they love personal stories they're addicted to personal stories they 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 want two bible verses taken out of context and a bunch of personal stories which we edit to make ourselves look like heroes instead of actually 
confess in public and do our good deeds in private. And that's actually what welcomes. Salvation can't be a once-off event. It can't be. So if salvation is, if liberation, um, if 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 it's going to become a way of actually leading us out of all the things we need to be saved from, mm-hmm. whatever yours are, and they're probably just as boring and mundane and regular as mine, it has to become a daily reality. And so that's what I mean when I talk about becoming a person of prayer. It, it's uh, becoming a person where, um, you know, and why as a, uh, you know, sacramental Pentecostal of an Anabaptist variety with a passion for Eastern Orthodoxy, um, it, it's why with with that makeup, things like sacraments as being the way that God's grace gets at us and setting up those routines and rhythms in our life, that our life becomes filled with the music of God's future is so critically important because salvation has to be practical. Hmm. When you're having a conversation with somebody who who's coming from an evangelical background and, 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 uh, like clearly it just doesn't like, not that this is a negative thing, but just isn't, hasn't, hasn't thought in this way before. But what you'd like to do is, is hopefully somehow in the conversation, lead them to the water. I mean, somehow like you, you want to kind of open a door or help to maybe like Jesus, like you ask a question that just kind of changes the whole thing. How how do you how do you do that? I mean, what are the what are the what are the ways um, in your relationship with people? And, and as you're trying to kind of explain the theology behind what you do, that that you try to help people see that there's just there's just so much more. Hmm. Yeah, Steve. For me, um, it's not often who I'm talking to. So. Um, uh, in these settings where I'm talking to um, white North Americans of, um, uh, you know, uh, pseudo-evangelical persuasion, I think often what I'm saying gets lost. But uh, in terms of my context, um, and a lot of pastors are really interested because in the last several years, like, um, uh, like uh, I don't know, near 50 friends with Muslim backgrounds um uh, have come to Christ in my ministry and uh, seen them baptized and released into lives of um, daring discipleship. And it's been really exciting. And people always ask, oh, so what's your apologetic? Like, what's your approach? And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah, how do we, we pop- love? Yeah. Yeah. We love people. And when they ask why we're ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, that's, that's it. It's not really rocket science. So people are like, Oh, how do you reach people? Um, you know, outside the church, it's like, well, you live your life amongst people who aren't caught up in cultures of Christian commercialism, uh, because they've got no time for that. I honestly haven't grown up with Christian music and don't know what's cool in the Christian kind of scene. And, um, that kind of, I hear people telling stories just last week about, you know, um, and then I burnt all my albums back when you could still burn albums and it wasn't copying them. Um, <laughs> I That wasn't my experience, right? I, I didn't experience any of that. I don't get that. And people are like, why is it that people with like such different faith backgrounds or no faith backgrounds are so attracted to what you say? And it's like, well, because 
I live my life with them. That's who I'm talking to. That's who I'm. And so if you have certain set of questions that uh, a certain white North American evangelical culture, even if it's been imported to Australia, will teach you to ask, you ask certain things. I think one of the best things um, that you both can do is learn from the prophetic black church tradition. It's been one of the biggest influences on my life. And last time I was hanging out with Richard Raw, we were um, discussing this and he did his line um, again, where he talks about the Alcoholics Anonymous is um, the greatest gift that um, uh, North American spirituality uh, to the world. And I'm like, nah, <laughs> Father Richard, it's, it's not really, it's not. There is the prophetic uh, tradition of the um, African-American church. And there's also uh, the First Nations traditions of both Canada and North America and, and what a decolonized Christ actually offers the world, which is a fascinating conversation in terms of Aboriginal peoples here in Australia as well. There is no salvation for white North American evangelicalism in white North American evangelicalism because mm. it's only through loving our neighbour that we're actually introduced to the kind of questions that would take us out of ourselves. Otherwise, what we're doing is is we're simply adding to what every already is a, a ghettoized reality. Um, uh, people need to get out. And people are so threatened that, whoa, whoa, if I encounter this stuff that's different, and we're just talking about our sisters and brothers who are different, let alone those who are our neighbours who we're to love um, from different traditions, um, let alone those who are our neighbours to love who are also our enemies. We are so ghetto-wise that even the cult, um, cultures that we're moving in are asking questions that won't actually bring us to Jesus, but will help us colonize Jesus and make him a mascot of those very cultures which have trapped us in ourselves. Mm. That's fascinating. I, I have a few questions. Um, where should I start? So we just had a conversation with... Uh, Richard Beck or Dr. Richard Beck. Uh, he was a professor at Abilene. Yeah. Do, you know, do you know Richard? Have you talked to Richard? Not personally, but I love his work. Yeah, he's, he's really a gift to the church and, yeah. and much more. And Richard brought up this really fascinating. We both share a, a similar influence in Walter Wink, who was the first person who ever uh, got me published. And uh, um, I'm, I'm very indebted to, to, uh, Walter Wink, and um, uh, I know that's been a big influence on Beck as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So Richard said this pretty profound thing, which started off by saying, you know, I don't think we're actually, and he was, when he said we, he was referring to kind of the North American, call it mainstream, you know, church, or even progressive leaning, whatever. Um, he said, I don't, I'm not convinced that our allegiance, our allegiance is actually to Jesus, um, but that deeper, you know, kind of the the level below that, kind of the, the really at the at our heart and soul, so often is a political party um, or some sort of broader you know social affiliation. And he he said this interesting sort of anecdote, which is you know, regardless of the political context in which you're saying it, so often in this country, and I would imagine it's not too different in yours, um, you know, you bring up the word immigration in light or, or, or refugees or, you know, that, that subject, even in light of like, here's what the scriptures say about loving our neighbor. Let's, let's reconsider this conversation around immigration. It can immediately become 
you know, pretty polarizing and, and because it's deemed as political and it's all of a sudden there's a wall that goes up and others are around us. It's an immediate trigger to, um, in the conversation and a means by which we label one another and to, Oh, you must be coming. You must be a progressive left wing, blah, blah, blah. Or you must just be your classic conservative right winger. Um, as someone that's really involved in, um, that kind of work, not only with immigration or refugees, um, but even broader justice and peacemaking. Um, is that something that you see in your context and, and how do you, I don't want to say, how do you work it out, but sort of how I'm, I'm curious your experience, given someone that's so active in that space, if that's, if you feel kind of often labeled and maybe that walls do go up quickly for that reason. He's a very, Australian answer, nah, yeah, or yeah, nah, which um, are actually different, uh, but both would apply in <laughs> in this uh, situation. Um, so, uh, yeah, to affirm the question, but nah, not always um, stuck in those ways of respond responding, and nah, that's not always the case. Um, but yeah, there is a reality to it, right? So now that we've cleared up that, thank you, Perfectly Australian clear, communication you. techniques. Isn't that it brilliant? Is. Yeah. Um, uh, so the the nature of the yeah nah is that it's both things at once. Um, so uh, there was a, a leaked memo from uh, your now president to my former prime minister um, who was my prime minister until a couple of weeks ago where um, the Huffington Post um, printed the conversation they had on the issue of immigration and your president said to my prime minister these three things um, in this order, these are three sentences, and yes, this is how he talks. He said, that's a good idea. We should do that too. You're worse than me. Three consecutive sentences. Now, the worse than me was deeply shameful for Australia because Australians love making fun of Americans. It's a, it's a national pastime. Um, uh, there, there are similarities in our countries. Um, uh, and one of the ways that you can tell that Australians actually like Americans is that we give you a hard time. In Australia, if uh, you have a mate um, who doesn't give you a hard time, they're probably not your mate. Um, it's, a, it's a way of, uh, in our uh, messed up um, Australian masculinity, of trying to love one another, which is a whole other <laughs> conversation. Yeah, yeah. But um, the, the fact that your um, president would say, you're worse than me, um, and then say that this is a good thing when what he was talking about is a reality of imprisoning um, people needing safety indefinitely as a deterrent for people coming to Australia, which is Australia's current policy. These are very difficult conversations for people to have because people immediately go, this is political. Andy, Steve-O, the reality is that politics is often what we call the pain of others that we have no proximity to. Hmm. Okay, unpack that. What do you mean? When we don't have a roof, it's our pain. It's not a political issue. But if somebody else has a roof over their head, it's a political issue because it's not our pain. Homelessness is a political issue unless you know sisters and brothers without a home. Domestic violence is a political issue until you've met sisters who are on the receiving end of life-threatening threats from people they're married to. Uh, um, climate change is a political issue unless you realise 
we're all living on the same freaking planet and what it means for our grandchildren, none of us can escape, right? Mm. Like, But we, with these kind of realities, it, we see it as politics when we have no proximity to it. So most of us have never been to the Maldives and ne- have never seen how this is affecting people right now. Uh, most of us can't connect the reality of um, the fires in winter and the uh, drought that are, we're currently experiencing or the fires in California and don't really that um, when I flush my toilet, what I do with drinking water, where my food comes from, these are all deeply spiritual issues. And because we suffer from such biblical illiteracy, where what we do is quote passages out of context and can never actually understand the narrative in our own context, is we find it hard to speak a word of hope to our hurting world because we think other people's pain is a political issue. And the toxicity of a people who claim the name of Jesus and yet won't move into the kind of places where our Lord is found amongst those whom our Lord parties with, amongst those whom God seems, if we take Scripture seriously, to care most about, not because they're worth any more than us, but because they're worth what everybody is worth. And we miss that. And... uh, If there is a a fragile identity that isn't our baptism that names us, we will turn away other people's pain because it threatens us with the call to repentance. Hmm. And so what I see so much of in your nation and mine is people, particularly Christians, let's talk to the church because judgment starts with the church, that if people don't understand that the pain of those who are suffering is actually God's cry, in their cry, we won't hear our call. And we forget that election isn't about us being special, it's about vocation. And we forget that our baptism means our vocation is to be wedded and united and bound to Christ in such ways that those whom Christ is bound to are now our people. If we understand that, we won't think about this in political categories. We will realise that all pain that knocks on our door is actually, it's Christ knocking on our door of the church saying, won't you let me in? And so if if we can start to see that Jesus wants us to take seriously that I was hungry, I was thirsty, Mm. I was naked, I was in prison, I was sick, I was an asylum seeker, a refugee, a stranger. And that as seriously as we expect Jesus to be present in our worship or at the table or when two or three are gathered, Jesus promises to be present in those places where people are hurting. And it's not abstract. It's not like, hey, Uh, those who experience salvation will go and be good to these people. It's no, no, no. If you want to experience salvation, move towards those cries until you cry those cries and hear God respond to those cries because God is in the business of answering cries. Now, you don't need the New Testament for that. You can just stay in Exodus for that. (laughs) Wow, yeah. But to take seriously that the burning bush that we encounter with Moses when, and turn aside instead of just move on straight by is the same power we see burning at Calvary 
and what it is that God cries those cries in response to those cries. What is it that it means that um, God incarnate in the pain-ridden poetry of the 22nd Psalm cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's God crying out to God on our behalf in complete solidarity to us and God's response to that. Now, that's the kind of spirituality that will take us beyond the idolatry of ideas, which, you know, Pentecostalism, and I'm a pastor in a Pentecostal denomination, same denomination as Hillsong um, here in Australia. Pentecostalism at its best is more than ideas. Pentecostalism at its worst is not even ideas. But the same is true of restorationist traditions as well, that there can be an idolatry of ideas where if we get our theology right, that will actually welcome transformation. Nah, we've got to risk being the hated Samaritan and get caught up in God's guttering grace that moves us in our guts into mercy and realize that that is sharing in eternal life. And so when it comes to these issues of politics, politics, particularly how people sat during the French Revolution, like, you know, on the left or on the right, is such a bad way of hearing the cries that actually within we hear our call. There is no hope for the church without Jesus. That should be obvious to every Christian. But there is no hope of hearing Jesus unless we hear the cries of those whom Christ cried on our behalf. And so then we realise that salvation isn't about us as individuals, it's about us together. And, you know, I I did an old call where over a thousand people responded to last month. I am big on calling people to respond to the gospel and let that lead to the waters and let that lead to a spirit-filled life and let that lead to a life of discipleship. But none of that means anything unless we can actually hear that the Christ who calls us is the Christ who's found in the pain of those whom we want to cross over to the other side of the road to avoid. We are saved through each other. The wealthy are saved from their wealth through the poor. The poor are saved from their poverty through the wealth of the rich. And this is the nature of Acts 2 and Acts 4. And if we're going to be a people that, quote-unquote, behold the pattern, right, a people who take seriously what, um, you know, Peter's sermon and how to respond after being cut to the heart, it doesn't end with repentance and baptism. That's the beginning. Mm. Mm. It's the beginning of becoming part of a community where we look like God's eternity breaking in to this reality right now. And that's why we start to practice a different economics, because we know we are Babel reversed. That's Pentecost. Babel, with all its alienating, um, uh, dominating, violent reality. Pentecost is we start to hear in the languages that are meaningful to us Mm. what love looks like in Jesus in a power that means that we can live that love. I, I think I need like an hour and a half just to go sit for a second. Like, well, I think that man. But Steve, this is part of the thing. Like Andy, the 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 point of all of this, right, is not for us to understand yes. it so we can control it, but to stand yeah. under it. So it brings us to awe and worship and wonder and praise and lament, and it calls us to respond to the cross of Christ in resurrection power. So we get caught up in something. 
Our idolatry of ideas keeps us from worship. We've got to learn to sing in response to both the pain and the praise. We've got to learn to... uh, um, uh, Hildegard von Bingham, um, the, the the great 12th century church leader, a doctor, a, a doctor of the Western Church, uh, talked about that music is a language of heaven. And those of us who ha- have actually come from traditions where singing is so important, we've got to be moved to sing both laments and praise in such ways that our theology doesn't become the end point. It becomes a starting point for discipleship. We've got to, again, undergo radical amazement, as Heschel would put it, so that we become people who don't have products to push, but take part in repentance and learn to pray. Yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, um, I mean, it, it makes sense, and yet it, 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 it kind of leaves you completely... Well, I think that's... I, well, I feel like that's Jer, like it's funny because I heard you say something in another interview that kind of didn't convict me as much as like maybe go oh that makes sense I I always want to wrap it in like okay so give us the three steps you know how can we for our listeners like how can we immediately <laughs> and I think it was a recent interview you did with the that bachelor host guy in Australia but uh, towards the end of it you were mentioning <laughs> Asha Ginsburg yes, yeah, yes yeah. you were uh, towards the end of it. You, you were talking about poetry. You were talking about, essentially, I interpreted it as we want kind of the three-step, here's how I do it, here's how it goes, kind of the cut and dry, here's how I capture that, here's my, this is this is a way to sum up this experience into these three steps or into these, uh, you know, bullet points to kind of take away and get pragmatic. And, it's, and but there's something just about the offending, transgressing sort of work of the spirit and of, you know, that comes true in, it comes through in art, in poetry, in music, in, in God's presence that doesn't leave you with three bullet points. Yeah. But, but that, so so when Steven said, man, I kind of just want to sit in that, I, I'm going to go ahead and just maybe take a guess that that's kind of what your sort of advice would be for people, right? To, to, to spend time in prayer, to spend time in the silence and to be, uh, be led. So, like, um, and, and again, this is where, like, St. Simeon, the new theologian, is so helpful. He has this metaphor around um, what are the foundations. And um, uh, he, he talks about the importance of foundations is that um, the, the roof that you will build can only be built upon these foundations. And he says that um, both uh, the the gift of God, which are, God's commandments, which is fascinating. Don't miss what he's saying. The commandments are a gift from God and they are a grace. And the grace that is the foundation for which these planks or commandments can actually build a roof over our lives are actually the same thing. So to remember that for the East and hearing BZ say this, um, who's a dear, dear friend, um, what um, Eastern Orthodox spirituality will remind us is that grace is not merely pardon, it's empowerment, right? Mm. So it's the power to live a life that does um, those who hear these words of mine and put them into practice are like a wise person who built upon a rock. So the 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 rock, the, the the firm foundation we have isn't a theology, it isn't even an experience. It it is the grace that moves us into action to live God's love. 
So for listeners who are going, oh, my goodness, what do I do with these? Well, realize that the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain end with the same parable that says we are fools if we don't put Christ's teachings into practice. Mm. So go and love your neighbor. Love God with all you got. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let your yes be yes. Don't let that be a legalism, but what it is to speak plainly in such ways that who you are is who you are, instead of like dressing it up as something more than that. Um, be quick to reconcile um, and and say that this is more important to getting to worship on Sunday, as important is actually gathering w- with others and, and being formed, is actually go as someone who runs to go and be a forgiver and not just forgiven. Um, do something drastic to remove temptation. Learn to pray in the closet where no one can see and not on street corners. Um, uh, give to the ones who ask. Um, uh, pray um, uh, and, and give in such ways that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Learn a kind of economic imagination that sees creation and says there is enough for everybody's need and not everybody's greed so how do i live sustainably within god's good right limits of the garden instead of constantly uh, wanting more and more even those things which are beyond limits realize that the the splendor of solomon in all his empire imitating ways but we do it with bible verses have nothing on the goodness of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field uh, learn to um, seek first the kingdom and, and God's healing justice. These are the practicalities of a life of grace. So it's like, where do I go with all this stuff? What we do is we teach them everything he has commanded us to obey out of the Trinitarian reality that is our baptism, inviting people as we go and realizing that God's present is with us as we move towards God's future which is approaching us. Like, I reckon Mm. half the stuff we got in Sunday school is heaps better than most of the theology that we're now reading. Jesus loves me, this I know. Start there. And then from there, live that love and know that it's practical by putting his commandments into practice. Grace goes. Compassion always leads us to action. Mercy is a movement. These are the very things that, like, um, let's realize that discipleship is just putting Jesus' teachings into action in the power that he saves us with. Mm. Andy, what I'm saying is there's no way to participate in the kingdom without actually undergoing the love of the king. And the power of that love is the power of the spirit, and it will always glorify the first person of the Holy Trinity, the Father. And so we've got to become people of prayer, and then, you know, then we'll actually there will be real humility and there'll be something in our life that attracts people. And instead of talking about ourselves all the time, we can get caught up talking about the love that we experience in prayer in such ways that people go, would you teach me to pray like you're learning to pray? You know, that's why the host of The Bachelor wants to have a conversation, right? Right. Us Aussies, we're very practical. Steve-O, we don't care what you say until we see what you do. And then once we see what you do, we might ask why. And setting Christ apart as Lord in our hearts, we should be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have, right? Come like on. they were memory verses for me too. Oh, man, so good. Stephen, you're, you're obviously in c- contemplation. We want to probably bring this in for a landing, but were you going to say something? Now, man, I mean, I'm... 
I'm just, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sensing, you know, it's hard when you, I guess being the people that we are, where we are, I mean, we, we, we are the people, we talked about this in the last episode, we're the people for whom this whole system kind of works pretty well. And so <laughs> the call, the call to the kingdom and the call to submission to the kingdom, wow. like for the people at the margins is a move up. It's a hand out and it's, and it's a hand that's reaching out and pulling up and, 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 and you'll, I think, but, but when you're on the other end, the momentum moves the other direction. Mm. Oh. So it's a, it's a downward pull and that's hard, man. I mean, that's hard. Like, especially in a society where, you know, to be like, to be making it, uh, is, ha- has a very particular trajectory and it is not in the direction of wholeness and well-being for everybody. Mm. So, yeah, man. I mean, if I'm honest, like sitting here having the conversation, I'm I'm feeling the downward yes. pull. And that's uh, I mean, I, I I know it's real. It's it's just it's hard. I mean, it's hard. Steve, Jacob's ladder. The only way up is down, right? Yeah. So, um, but we need to understand that the only way up is down. And so the good life isn't what we've been taught it, and that's how it's hard. Our flesh, that is um, uh, our, our psyche, which has been formed in systems of domination, it longs to be at the top of those domination pyramids, and we're being called out of the land of pyramids into another land. And most of us desire flesh pots, and that's normal. And that's why the Exodus brings such encouragement. So instead of us like ragging on the Old Testament and, and going, no, 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 this is incredibly practical and, and realizing that if you don't have compassion for people who captivity is a better option than freedom, we haven't spent enough time with our own captivities. If, if, if we don't daily find ourselves longing from what we're being saved from, we're maybe not being honest about what we're being saved from. And so we can't open to what we're being saved for. So if we start to learn to desire the good life, which is good life for all, and any form of life or dream of life that comes at the cost of others isn't a kingdom dream, because a kingdom dream restores the dignity of all kingdom citizens. And so anything that destroys the image of God in reality is anti the kingdom of God. And we go all the way back to the first page of the Bible and realize that God sets up icons that is god sets up statues of who god is and it's not just the king like the babylonian creation myth where this is where the presence of god is found in the king but there is a royal reality to all of humanity and what is it to relate to kids in our neighborhoods like the neighborhoods where i live in and teach them that there is a royalty and a dignity to you, despite what others on the street corners trying to push stuff will say about them or about you, despite what you hear because of the color of skin or your orientation or your economic reality, that you have the dignity of a child of God. And anything in our life that says, I have more dignity than somebody else is demonic. And we have to name it and ask it to be cast out of us. If I think I have more dignity than someone else and anything that says I have less dignity than anyone else is demonic and must be cast out. And the kingdom of God comes by that kind of force. 
And that's the kind of force and that's the kind of power that we've got to learn to operate in, what it is to assert our dignity in such ways that people experience us and feel a call to step into it, what it is to be human and realise that my life that comes at the cost of slave children making my shoes or making my shirts or cutting down um, uh, their environment um, to, to make my product, which I'll throw away tomorrow, none of that looks like God's dream for reality. So the joy of repentance is actually realizing that I'm a child of God, no more, no less. My baptism is enough to name me, and that's all I want at the end of the day, for God to call me his child and say that he is pleased because I've recognized others as children of God. That's it. It's, it's, we make it so much more complicated. Anything that is domination over others ripping away their dignity, it's demonic. Anything which asserts the dignity of all of humanity, that is divine. And we've got to become people who usher in that kind of reign, that kind of kingdom, and do it with cruciform power. Mm. Wow. Thanks, Jared. That's, I feel yeah. really connected hey, to you. That's awesome. That's powerful. So on a on a practical note, I'm curious because I know you're doing some some traveling. Are you going to be in the States anytime soon? That's why I got a haircut. Um, so I, I got a haircut because I'm in the U.S. five times this year, and it's um, it's not appropriate for me to have dreadlocks um, in the U.S. because uh, it's not associated with surf culture in the U.S. It's associated with other people's culture who have had so much stolen from them. So the least I can do is have a haircut. So um, that's why you'll find me in the U.S. without dreadlocks. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm in New York uh, towards the end of the year with mates from uh, C3 Brooklyn and uh, Middle Collegial um, church as well, and uh, I'll also be in Hawaii, which um, apparently, officially, is America. <laughs> I'm like, mm. if you get a flight from North Queensland, it's nearly as close to Australia. I really don't understand why that's... Uh, <laughs> but anyway, th- th- we'll leave those histories for another episode. Uh, but I'll be teaching back in uh, Hawaii in December as well. Awesome. Well, if you ever find yourself in... Uh in good old Georgia, in the Southland, <laughs> we'll hit you up. It'd be great to connect in person, man. But uh, this has been Fantastic. this has been super blessing, man. Thank you so much, and I think I could speak for all our listeners as well. Really appreciate the time and uh, giving us a lot to think about. So thanks for just every day following the, the yeah, spirit man. in your life. It's a, appreciate your example and your word here. Thanks, fellas, Steve-O, Andy. Welcome to your Australian names. Come on, man. I love it. Thanks, guys. Everyone, everyone listening, thanks for tuning in. I'm going to turn record off here. Thanks, guys.